welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Lupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. As a side note, my voice is slowly coming back. It's a little better than it was a couple episodes ago. I was sick over a month ago and my voice has not yet recovered, but things are looking better. All right, so with that, let's dive right in to our passage of the day before we continue the series on tyranny. Uh, this passage is related to the topic of tyranny, and it's 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 18. Here's what it says from the English Standard Version. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards, and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants, and the best of your young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So, in this passage, the historical context is that Israel has uh, come out of Egypt already. Moses is dead, and so is Joshua. The period of judges is also over. It was a period of chaos, as well as a lot of idolatry and tyranny, which we can talk more about that at some other point. But here, the prophet Samuel is essentially leading, if you will, the people of Israel although it's very decentralized, there's 12 tribes, with their own elders and, and judges. But all of the elders, basically the Congress, if you would, of, of Israel, all the elders come together and they want a king. So they ask Samuel to appoint for them a king, to anoint a king for them. And they specifically want a king that's like the other nations, to judge them, go before them, and fight their battles. So, they saw Egypt. They lived under Egyptian rule for quite some time. They saw the pharaohs. They saw the glory that the pharaohs had, the power, how awe-inspiring they were, how much authority they wielded, and how much they were esteemed in the eyes of their neighbors. Um, it just, the pharaohs were awesome. They were cool. They were powerful, and they were respected, very much so. And they want something like that. They know that the other pagan nations have kings like this, and so they would like to be like them. So they ask for a king. Now Samuel, he warns them about exactly what they're going to get when they get a king like this, essentially describing a very large standing army, with, of course, all of the servants necessary to keep that army going, workers to work the land, provide services, and this king is going to take the first and the best 
from the people. He's also going to take 10% of all of their produce and all of their livestock, so their property and their income. A tenth of it is going to go to the king. And this is going to result in the slavery of the people. And this is going to result in the slavery of the people. And when the slavery happens, and it's because of the king that they choose, so Samuel is very much putting the ball in their court, saying, you do realize that you're choosing this, right? And when you choose it, this is the result that you're going to get. It's going to be slavery, and when you cry out, God's not going to hear you. You understand this, right? Well, either way, at the end of this warning, the people say, no, we still want a king like the other nations. Give us a king. You know, let's move on. Let's do it. So either they think that slavery is worth it. It's not so bad to be slaves as long as you get the king like the other nations. You get all of the, the, the glory that comes with it. Or maybe they think that they're going to find a way to avoid slavery somehow, that they'll be able to get uh, that they'll be able to get the, the benefit and not have to pay the price for it. Of course, looking back, we realize that's not the case, but humans are like this. We, we see something that looks really good and beneficial, but then we don't think about the consequences. And even if someone warns us about the consequences, we tend to ignore it. Oh, it's not going to be as bad as you think. Or we trick ourselves into thinking that we can avoid the consequences. You know, I'll find a way out or I'll figure something out in the future. When that happens, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Um, that's the kind of reasoning that we use when faced with something that really looks good despite all the warnings that people are, are giving us. So it might look good, but it's not, it's not really good. It might look like we're going to be free but really, we're going to be enslaved. Um, and so we make these choices. And here Israel chooses that, and that's what they get. So one principle of application is that people get the rulers that they ask for. They get the rulers they deserve. Now, that could be active or passive. So actively, you, you hear you have the elders, they are actively uh, asking Samuel for a king. Now, are those elders acting on their own? Or are they acting on behalf of the people? Do the people, are they pushing for this? Maybe. Or maybe there are some people that aren't, don't really want this, but are going along with it. So a person can be giving consent, if you will, by actively saying, yes, I want this king, or just by letting it happen, not doing anything about it, and okay, well, it's it's passively, yeah, this is fine, I'm not going to say anything about it, I, I accept, I accept the results of my inaction, I accept the results of me not saying anything and not getting involved. Again, you, you get what you tolerate, right? So the people of Israel, um, have made this decision, and this is what it looks like. So, ultimately for us today, the ways of the world might look really good, but it ends up being a false hope and a false 
uh, glory and a false joy. That doesn't uh, deliver. It's actually quite similar to the uh, forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. Again, it looks good. It sounds like it's tasty. It appeals to me. It seems like it would be good for food, but in the end, it brings death. So that is our passage of the day. And to give one last thought on this passage, just as as Americans living 21st century America, just consider Samuel described 10% as tyrannical and oppressive and slavery. That is what Scripture describes as um, as that. It's 10%. How much do we give today to our government? A lot more than that. So just, uh, you know, just a thought to keep in mind um, about what Scripture says about tyranny. And what makes that the case is because only God is the one who can require 10%. And that's what he required of the tithe. Tithe means tenth. So the people of Israel were to give 10% of their first and their best to God. And for the king to require that is the king putting himself in the place of God. And we saw this a little bit in our in the previous episode as we looked at the origins of tyranny with Lamech uh, taking upon himself uh, the role of God. Uh, and we're going to look at it more here today. All right, so that's our passage of the day. Let's dive on into part two. I don't know of how many parts there's going to be, but it's part two of tyranny. And we're going to look at how do tyrants rise up and how do they behave when they are in authority. And we looked a little bit at matriarchal and patriarchal tyranny, and we're going to continue that uh, that theme today. So I just want to begin by offering you a thought experiment. Um, imagine a Wild West-like area where there is no authority. People are just living um, on their own. Uh, there's families or whatever, but there's no government. And you say, all right, how do things work out? How do things play out? And this is a common theme amongst post-apocalyptic movies. Just think of all the movies in which the government becomes non-functional. Uh, it could be uh, a movie about uh, a, a disease that wipes out everything and everybody, right? Or all those zombie movies. Think of The Walking Dead, where the, everything has become anarchy and there are no more governments. Or natural disasters, a flood, or all the power goes out. All the communications are, are gone. Um, there's many, many movies and TV series that uh, look at some kind of future where there is no government or, or nuclear war that wipes everybody out except for um, some communities that are left. So essentially, it's a, a land of chaos, and out of this chaos arises a person who is going to bring order to the chaos. Now, typically in these movies or in these TV shows, that person is usually not the good guy. It's typically a villain of some sort. 
So think of the most recent show of The Walking Dead. One of the greatest villains is a man named Negan. And if you read the comics or if you've watched the show, they do a very good job of describing or portraying like the perfect tyrant in him because he hates chaos and he desires order and he believes that the best way to accomplish this is through brute force and his group is called the saviors they call themselves the saviors and that's because he believes that they are actually saving the world by forcing every living person to comply and to submit he is maintaining order in this world of chaos with all these zombies you know it's a very dangerous world out there um and if we don't keep things together it's all going to fall apart and and humanity is going to die the human race is going to be destroyed unless somebody can smash enough heads and keep everyone in line so you got that you also have other examples uh, older movies like uh, Mel Gibson's uh, Mad Max. Again, a post-apocalyptic um, Australia where people are fighting over resources and there's only so many resources available and, and the only solution is for somebody to take over as a tyrant and, and rule with an iron fist. Or you think of uh, a Kevin Costner movie called The Postman where, again, it's a nuclear war, post-apocalyptic realm there's no more communication, very little technology, and the villain is named General Bethlehem, a self-described general, and his job, his goal is to rebuild um, an empire out of the fragments of the United States, and it's going to be an empire, a nation that is in accordance with his vision of bringing order out of chaos. Now, in all of these situations, the tyrant, um, he's got a vision. Um, those who submit to this vision and to his plan are protected and blessed. And those who resist are destroyed. And brutality is really the only way to achieve the goal. And they usually don't think of themselves as evil, if you will, because in their minds, it's necessary to accomplish um this this goal of uh, it, 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 it's a good end right it's necessary to accomplish this good objective this good solution to the current crisis or the current problem so even in the walking dead series to go back to that negan who was very brutal very vicious basically showed no grace or mercy to anyone um he, when he's talking to the hero or the good guys in the story, he tells him nobody thinks that he's the bad guy. That's what, that's what Negan says. Nobody thinks of himself as the evil one, as the bad guy, because he had just been told that he was the bad guy uh, by the hero of, of the story. So, and I think that's true. I think that no villain really thinks that he is a villain. Um, and we'll, we'll see this when we look at uh, men like Hitler as well. Um, and, but I, in fact, I want to bring up a 
epic poem called Paradise Lost. And some of you may have heard uh, of this poem. It was written by John Milton um, after, the, like, right after the Reformation. So it was written in England in the 1600s by a man named John Milton. Uh, he was a Christian, a Protestant, and essentially he wrote this epic poem which describes the fall of Satan and the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden and the results of it and also the war in heaven and there's another book called Paradise Regained where he looks at uh, the temptations of Jesus and how Jesus defeated Satan. So in this one section that I want to present to you is where Satan has already been cast out of heaven. He has already said that it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Um, but he is on the verge of dis uh, disguising himself as a serpent and going into the garden. He's just found out about Adam and Eve being created in God's image on this perfect paradise. And his goal is to completely undermine and destroy that which God has done. And in this section that I'm going to read is him justifying to himself what he's about to do. It's in Old English, so I'm going to basically translate it. I'll read it, and then I'll describe what's happening uh, here. So here's what he's basically saying to them. But he's not actually talking to Adam and Eve yet, but this is what he would say to them in his own mind, how he's justifying it uh, when he's when he's looking at Adam and Eve and watching them live in uh, harmony and peace with each other. He says this, Thank him who puts me loth to this revenge on you who wrong me not for him who wronged. And should I at your harmless innocence melt as I do, Yet public reason just, honor and empire with revenge enlarged. So I'll pause there. Essentially, he says that they, don't, they can thank God for what's about to happen. Satan is going to get revenge on God. But he's, he's thinking of Adam and Eve. He's like, listen, don't blame me for this. You can go ahead and thank God for what I'm about to do. And um, it's not you who wronged me, Adam and Eve. You're not the ones that wronged me. God is the one that wronged me with what he did to me. And should I, you know, I, I see your harmless innocence. And it makes me want to melt to, to see how innocent you are and what I'm about to do to you with my temptation. But there is a very just public reason for me to do this, um, to enlarge honor and empire using revenge to enlarge my honor, to regain my honor at, and to regain my power and my glory as a fallen angel. Um, that's, that's, there's a good reason for me to do this. And, and so that's basically what he just said. And so let me continue here. He says, by conquering this new world compels me now to do what else, though damned, I should abhor. And he ends that statement. He says, okay, so basically I'm going to conquer this new world, this earth. I'm compelled to do so. Um, and even though um, I should 
abhor what I'm about to do, and I'm damned already for doing it. I have no choice. I have no choice. I've already been damned. I normally would abhor what I'm about to do, but you, you, you know, I have no choice. God has given me no choice to do this. And then the narrator of the poem uh, describes what Satan has just said, and here's what he says. Uh, so spake the fiend, and with necessity the tyrant's plea excused his devilish deeds. So right there in that short statement, uh, John Milton has really succinctly wrapped up what tyranny looks like. The tyrant's plea. So Milton says, this is the tyrant's plea. He always pleads necessity. He always says that he needs to do this. This is the only option. And that if he doesn't do this, uh, it's not going to be able to accomplish what he needs to accomplish. So he is driven by necessity, by emergency, uh, to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. So it's not really his fault. He has no choice. So this is the mindset of the tyrant. Um, and this is what we see in all of the popular culture, and of course we see it in Scripture as well. So, all right. Well, why do these tyrants even even get into power? Like, how is that even possible? That if you know, don't don't people know any better? Do they really want this? Well, the tyrants rise up because the people let them, or they want them to. And like I said before, in the passage of the day, Israel wanted something, and they didn't either believe it or realize it was going to lead to tyranny but they wanted it anyways. Maybe they thought it was worth it. But the people desire a savior and someone to rescue them. The people are in great need. And the tyrant offers order and prosperity and security. So in, in some minds, it might be better to have tyranny than to have anarchy. Okay? Now, maybe it's not really a choice between anarchy and tyranny. Maybe they're just very, very discontent. And this was a problem in many times throughout history, one of which being the rise of Julius Caesar. So one of the things that Caesar did is he appealed to the people by offering them free food, bread, and entertainment, circuses. So that's where we get the phrase bread and circuses from, because Caesar really did a good job of doing that, of really winning over the hearts of the people using his own wealth that he had accumulated in his conquests in France and other parts of the empire, um, he would essentially was bribing the people to love him. And he was offering them uh, those promises of free bread and uh, continual entertainment. Um, it was appealing to their basic desires and their basic needs. And it's not a big deal as long as you give him power, give him authority, submit to him, and you'll get what you want. So it's that kind of idolatry that leads people to embrace it. Now, there is an aspect of fear as well. But usually this takes place either after the person's in power or maybe while they are ascending in the power, but it's, it's, it's during the process. Usually at the very beginning, they can't become, they can't be too brutal. Uh, because it would become very distasteful 
and the people would not uh, buy into that or, or bite off on the on the bait. So, but but at some point, fear does become a factor because, again, if you're the tyrant and you can crack enough skulls, you're going to make everyone very, very afraid. And if everyone's afraid of you, they're not really going to rise up against you, mostly because they don't know who else would also join them in rising up. And they also don't know if people would rat them out. So there's that fear of your neighbor that if you say something critical uh, about the, the, the boss to your neighbor, your neighbor could curry favor with the boss by ratting you out. And so by turning you in, he gets a benefit. Maybe he gets a reward and you lose everything. So people don't want to be that sacrificial lamb. They don't want to make that sacrifice. Um, they don't want to risk losing everything for, you know, so-called freedom from this tyrant. So they'd rather just stay and just kind of hide under the radar and hope that they don't get targeted by the tyrant. Um, so that's how the fear aspect works. It turns everyone's neighbor against himself. And that's how the tyrant maintains control. Everyone's afraid, nobody trusts each other, and nobody is going to stick their neck out because they don't know who would join them or who would um, turn them in. Okay, so the tyrant becomes an authority. And what is some of the behavior that he exhibits? Well, I've mentioned it before, but one action is extreme violence. The smallest act against the tyrant is taken personally. It's an act of self-deification. Again, tyranny always roots back towards an attempt by a person to view themselves as God or as God-like, to put themselves in the place of God. So think of it this way. Why is it that in the Bible, the death penalty is given for murder? Well, you, you, you kill somebody, you kill someone made in the image of God, and because of the value of the person, that's why you die. Even though it maybe only took you 30 seconds to kill the person, um, it's, it's, the, it's the value of the victim, the person that you, that you sinned against that kind of dictates the, the punishment. And in the same way, the reason why our sins against God incur hell is because God is of infinite value and we are sinning against him and he made us as well, of course. Um, so he's of great value. We sin against him and we get uh, the punishment of hell. Well, what the tyrant does, and this is what I talked about with the passage from Genesis in the previous episode with Lamech. So the tyrant does is the slightest offense against him incurs great wrath because he values himself way more than he should. And that's why Lamech could say, if Cain's uh, vengeance is sevenfold, mine is 77-fold. Um, anyone who crosses me is going to get it pretty hard. So again, that's where we get extreme violence from uh, when it comes to the tyrant because um, his honor and his authority have been harmed. He values himself uh, more than he should. And therefore, since he is of such great value, sins against him 
deserve great punishment. That's basically how that works. Another aspect is paranoia or lack of trust, because unlike God, the tyrant doesn't have all knowledge. He knows he's mortal and he's limited in his power. He has to rely on some subordinates to execute his commands and his will. So there's always that what if in his mind, that what if one of my subordinates is turning against me or is going to overthrow me or is working with my enemies or is not really loyal? All these questions uh, uh, plague the tyrant. And if he shows weakness, if the tyrant shows weakness, others might try to take his power from him. So he doesn't want to show weakness. You got to be cruel and you have to use force because everyone will see that as power and they'll be afraid that he still has the power to take life and to execute his judgment upon those who would dare cross him. And also he's afraid of failure or rebellion. Um, again, underneath the tyrant's authority still remains the people. The people either actively or passively allow it to happen. So he knows that he doesn't want to look bad in the eyes of the people. If he loses the fear or love or admiration and compliance of the people, it's all over. He's going to get overthrown by somebody else. So he depends upon the people still. Even though he oppresses them, he depends upon them. He needs them to submit and to obey. And cruelty has its limits. If he goes too far, the people could break and overthrow him. And if he is too incompetent and fails in keeping up his promises, again, that could cause it all to fall apart. So that fear of failure, that fear of rebellion, uh, contributes towards that paranoia. And the third, of course, is control. Now, it's they're all related. Control, paranoia, the cruelty, because the control is needed to ensure that the dream is achieved. Okay, so... The tyrant has a dream, a vision of the world. And, and if there's too many variables, it can't all be controlled. The tyrant is not sovereign as much as he'd like to be. And he hates the idea that he can't micromanage everything. So there's always the possibility that someone could ruin everything if they wanted to. So he must have as much control as possible because he's the one that has the vision. And he thinks that if everyone just does what he says, it's going to work out really, really good. So he needs that control. And since there is a lack of control, and there's always the risk that someone's going to ruin it for everybody or ruin it for him, paranoia sets in. And um, those who don't conform must be punished severely. Again, they must submit to his absolute control. And if they cannot be controlled, well, then they need to be gotten rid of. That's how that works. So actions of control are always necessary. Again, in his mind, the tyrant's mind, it's necessary to get the order that he wants, to achieve the dream. It's necessary that everyone does their part and follows the rules. And if anybody gets out of line, I have no choice but to get rid of them. That is what the tyrant um, thinks in his mind. And it's justified. It's of necessity. It's an emergency. Without, without this control, it all falls apart. Now, these qualities like I mentioned in the last episode, can be patriarchal or matriarchal. Again, we typically think of the tyrannical king like this. But a queen could be the same way, but it just looks a little different, right? So, you know, you have the tyrannical father and the tyrannical mother, the, the, over, the overwhelming 
or helicopter parent mother, right? She, you know, she's got a vision of how the people can get along and live together. She views them as her children. And there's dangers everywhere. All around, there's dangers for her children, her people. And some of those dangers are other people. You know, amongst all the people are these bad apples that are ruining it for everybody else. And they're undermining her authority and they're preventing her from giving the care and the safety and the security and the comfort that she wants to give to her children. So they need to be dealt with. The world is dangerous and must be controlled. There's too much danger out there. You know, so you think of the helicopter parent. Again, typically a mother, could be a father though, but typically a mother on the playground or the way they, they treat their children as far as like, you know, they don't want anything ever to hurt them. Never, ever, ever need to wrap a bubble around them and keep them super, super safe because um, the, the world is just too dangerous, too dangerous. And so those dangers, they they do incur the mother's wrath though. And that's where we get the concept of the mama bear. Why is that even a thing we think about? Because as people can imagine, if you go and hurt or threaten the, the, the cubs of a mama bear, her attack is vicious and ruthless and merciless. So um, there's always a threat out there. And even though she greatly cares for and protects and loves her cubs, anybody or anything that is viewed as a threat to her babies, to her, her children, her cubs, is absolutely evil and must be destroyed. And so, again, you have the same kind of, the same result, really, of control, fear, paranoia, and viciousness. It just, it looks different. It's two sides of the same coin as far as the tyrannical king and the tyrannical queen. So that is really a, a brief summary of what we see with the rise of tyrants and, and their behavior. Now, I want to end with looking at an example of Adolf Hitler. So again, a lot of people just think of Hitler as like, I mean, he was a clear tyrant, very evil. Um, how could anybody want to serve him? How could anybody want to follow him? You know, it's ridiculous, right? I don't, we don't understand. It's just so clear cut. Well, it wasn't that clear cut to the people of Germany. Um, and I would encourage, if you want to, it's, it's very long, but you can read the diary of Ambassador William Dodd. So William Dodd was the ambassador from the United States to Germany um, until 1938 or so. So he saw the rise of Hitler and Hitler taking uh, power as chancellor and leader of Germany. And his diary is hundreds of pages long, but he kept a very meticulous journal and diary of what life was like as an ambassador representing the United States, uh, talking to the German foreign office and living there in Germany during uh, Hitler's uh, first early years of his reign. So I'm just going to read a little bit from one entry, and it's from August uh, 22nd in 1934. So Hitler's only been in power for about a year, year and a half or so. Um, and he talks about how he went to go see a play uh, about the early life of Jesus. Um, it's basically the, the passion play. Uh, and so here is what he says. He says, At two o'clock, we took our places again in the great hall, and the tragedy slowly moved to its culmination. The betrayal by Judas, the trial of Jesus, 
and the awful scene of the executions on the cross, with law officers climbing short ladders to the crucified individuals and beating them before their deaths. When Jesus was tried before the angry Jewish court, a well-dressed German, looking very solemn, said to me, Est ist unser Hitler. So, pause there. So you have a person uh, talking to uh, Dodd and telling him, you know, in the scene where Jesus is on trial, he says, that's Hitler right there. That's, that's Sir Hitler. And then he goes on in the diary. He says, Ida Horn, a distant kinswoman of mine, sitting in another part of the hall, told me as we came out together, a woman near me said, as Judas received his 30 pieces of silver, she said, Est ist Rome. I'll pause there. So Ernst Rome was one of Hitler's henchmen and leader of the brown shirts uh, up until Hitler became in power. And then for whatever reason, and I think historically we can see that Rome was kind of a threat to Hitler and didn't really comply with him as much as perhaps Hitler wanted him to. Um, Hitler eventually denounced Ernst Rome and had him arrested and executed in, I think, July of 1934. So just a couple, just a month or two before this play that William Dodd was at, um, Rome was essentially put on trial as a traitor and accused of treason and attempting to overthrow um, Adolf Hitler as, as chancellor, even though he had been one of Hitler's brown shirts for, for years and, and the leader there for a, quite a while. So again, uh, this this person here, this German a woman is associating Judas' betrayal of Jesus as Rome's betrayal of uh, of Hitler, and then uh, Dodd says this as the last sentence of uh, of this paragraph. He says, "I suspect half the audience, the German part, considers Hitler as Germany's Messiah." So, with that little uh, entry there in Dodd's diary, I want to jump to a second entry uh, a few weeks later on September eighth. Uh, this was a very interesting. So um, he sat on a train uh, in Germany uh, next to someone who wanted to talk. So here's what he says. I sat next to a neat-looking fellow passenger who was quite desirous of talking freely. He said he was born and raised in Germany. He now lives in New York. He had spent the summer in Italy, Germany, and Russia, and he seemed to have made good contacts and learned much. He was troubled and shocked at the Hitler ruthlessness and cruelty. He thought the German people did not approve, but were helpless. When another well-dressed fellow passenger who sat opposite me indicated a desire to talk, the New Yorker asked him frankly how he liked the regime. The reply was enthusiastic. And then uh, Dodd quotes the uh, man speaking in German, but here's what the man says. Hitler is our great leader. We are for him everywhere, and these French who encircle us, we will make an end of these evil enemies. So that, again, is an example where you have passengers, maybe some of them, um, particularly the ones that don't live in Germany, are a little skeptical and a little hostile. But those are just two examples where publicly uh, Germans are praising Hitler as their great leader, as their messiah, um, and they... They love him, and they want him to lead. Now, maybe they don't fully understand the repercussions of what they wanted, but keep in mind that Hitler did not really keep secrets. He was pretty honest with what he 
advocated for and what he believed and what he wrote in his book, Mein Kampf, and what he said publicly. So, um, again, we have a tendency to just dismiss um, the role that the people play in this, um, but uh, it's, it's very clear, again, that a lot of times, maybe even every time, um, tyrants come about because the people either let them or want them to, to take power. Um, even if they don't really fully understand what they're asking for. And maybe they regret it when it's all over. But in that moment, they don't regret it at the beginning. Just like the people of Israel, they were warned and they said, we don't care, we want it anyways. Maybe later on, they will regret it. And even Samuel seems to suggest that they will, that they're going to cry out to God eventually. They're going to regret their choice, but God's not going to hear them. They will be given over to their decision. They made their decision, and they're going to have to live with it. And that's what Samuel warned Israel, and I think that we need to uh, learn that lesson today and consider how it applies. So that'll be uh, all for today's episode as we look at the rise and behavior of tyrants. Uh, I do want to look at some other examples from popular culture and some uh, specific books uh, on that topic in the next episode. So we'll, we'll cover that next time. So with that, if you have any questions or comments or any other topics you'd like me to address related to the topic of, of tyranny, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com or message me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, look for Governed by God and you can reach me there. So until next time, take care and God bless.